You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You know, the word geek uh, implies, well, it used to mean like, you know, some kind of weirdo, deformed character in a sideshow, which is pretty cruel and, and awful, but uh, uh, it uh, came to mean uh, a uh, somebody with uh, perhaps unhealthy obsession with some hobby. And uh, I, I, that, uh, well, that's, you know, how it's used. I'm not going to challenge that, nor would I uh, challenge the allegation that I am a geek uh, when it comes to the Bible and some other things. Hence the name of the show, right? The Bible Geek. Uh, and uh, I am just fascinated with the Bible, and it's not because I think, uh, oh, gee, I, I got to do what the Bible says. I, I can't do anything that... Uh, would contradict what Obadiah says here or Leviticus says there. No, that, that, that's long past for me. Uh, I, uh, but but uh, having given that up, I uh, in no way have lost my interest in the Bible. In fact, it's grown exponentially over the decades, and uh, I just love the Bible and love trying to figure out its puzzles. And that's what the Bible Geek is all about, trying to answer questions about it, uh, presenting possibilities uh, for answers and so on. I am not uh, presupposing that anybody holds any particular religious doctrine about the Bible. Um, and I, I mean, you might find what I'm saying alien and strange, uh, that might be a euphemism for heretical, but ultimately it means it's unfamiliar from one's uh, religious instruction. And uh, I hope if that's you and you say, what? Uh, you will take that as an opportunity to say, uh, what if I'm wrong? What, what if there is another possibility as to the meaning of this text than I uh, ever thought? Look at that, if you will, as a moment of possible discovery, of broadening your grasp of the Bible. Now, I, the more options you see, the less sure you can be. Right? It's very easy to dogmatize about the meaning of the Bible when you've only heard one view and that's all you want to hear, but that, that's irresponsible. That's not intellectually honest. Uh, and... Um, well, any more than you would uh, buy a car on a whim without looking up uh, facts about it and asking people who had it, you know, well, how was it for you, etc. Uh, it's it's like uh, deciding who you're going to vote for. Surely you don't flip a coin. Surely you don't just do what people tell you to do. You consider both sides, all sides, and make up your own mind. Well, you know, how, how can you treat, uh, treat the sacred text of the Bible in any 
less um, serious a way. And uh, I am uh, sort of a smart aleck and uh, make all kinds of funny and irrelevant comments, but don't think for a second that that's because I mean to ridicule the Bible. Uh, no, uh, when, it, when it might sound like that, what I'm really trying to do is to ridicule some people's interpretation that I think is way off and to uh, help uh, listeners to look at the passage in a new way. Plus, uh, you know, you don't want it to be just a bunch of uh, deadly, boring uh, dicta from a, uh, from a windbag. Uh, and, uh, of course, I might be a windbag, but nonetheless, I'm trying to make it fun. Anyway, having uh, said that, let's uh, get on to some of the great questions. They're always very interesting uh, that uh, have been sent in to, or fallen from heaven, to enrich the rain barrel. So let's take a look. Here we are. This is from Thomas the Black. Though I'm not religious, lately I've been having Bible study with a friend who is. In my excuse me, study, I came across a few interesting things, and I thought I'd ask you about them. The first is about, quote, certain, unquote, women in Acts 1, verses 13 and 14, where the Bible says Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, son of James, were all having a seance. Uh, oh, I mean, uh, praying together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. Who were these certain women? Do we have any clue as to who they were anywhere in the canonical books of the Bible or in the apocryphal books? Well, uh, yeah, actually, I think it's, it's pretty clear that if you look over at the beginning of Luke 8, I believe it is, it says that uh, certain wealthy women followed on with the disciples and Jesus as they went from place to place to teach and preach and all that stuff, and they would support them uh, from their own resources, and uh, which is, you know, not a, that unusual, right? You have a a guru and his disciples who take care of his earthly needs, right? But it does name them, and there's Mary, there is Joanna, the uh, husband, uh, sorry, the wife of Chusa, who was a kinsman of uh, Herod Antipas. There was Susanna, uh, and uh, two or three Marys. Uh, why is that, you might ask? Well, because um, half of the women in ancient Judah in the time of Jesus were named either some version of Mary, Mariam, Miriam, whatever, uh, or Salome, and uh, the rest, all sorts of things. But you're going to walk into a room and uh, it's like a Monty Python skit, you know, the, uh, come on in, uh, join the group, uh, let me just introduce you around, uh, here's uh, Mike and Mike and Mike and Mike and Mike. Uh, uh, and uh, what's your name again? Oh, my name is uh, Bill. And he says, uh, would you mind if we called you Mike to avoid confusion? I mean, I I've always uh, experienced that because when I was named Robert, loads of other kids were. And so uh, wherever I go, if there are any 
fossils as uh, antiquated as I am, there's liable to be a bunch of bobs in there, but you know, I'm not complaining because there's something about that name. Well, these are the women, the women disciples, uh, and uh, surely that is what the author of Acts intends, that, yeah, they were following uh, Jesus, and they were uh, present at the crucifixion, and they were praying uh, along with the, the disciples. And so that's, uh, that's, that seems to be what, what's going on there. Uh, Thomas says, my second question has to do with the resurrection of Jesus and who he told about it. Do you think it was intentional that Mark has a stand-in appear inside Jesus' tomb instead of Jesus himself? Also, that Mark had the stand-in notify a group of women first about Jesus' resurrection. <laughs> Being that women were of lower status in society and had essentially no standing, why would the Savior and Creator of all there is, A, not be there himself to tell the women, and B, tell the women instead of a respected elder male? Um, in, again, Mark 16, 5 through 8. Well, uh, in Mark, it's like Jesus is already gone. Uh, and uh, gone where? It, well, it, it might be that he is gone directly from earth to heaven at the right hand of God. But then he says that, that or he, the, the young man in the tomb says that Jesus has instructed him to tell the women, to tell the male disciples to go meet him in Galilee. Uh, so maybe he has started uh, on foot. Uh, you know, it doesn't actually say in the empty tomb stories that Jesus had just risen. Right? It's just that that's the day, the on the third day, whatever, three days later, depending on what you prefer, uh, that the, the empty tomb was discovered. But when, you know, how long before Jesus had left, who knows? So uh, maybe he's just going to make a miraculous beam down in Galilee, or maybe he's just hoofing it like they're going to have to do, but he'll get there first. Uh, who knows? Doesn't say. Uh, and, uh, and and then who is the, uh, the young man in the tomb? Most uh, interpreters think that they mean an angel because in various apocryphal and other works, angels are often depicted as looking like youths. Uh, and uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I suspect that is true, but who knows? Uh, it may be, however, uh, a follower of Jesus who is a little bit more with the program than the, the male disciples or these women uh, and uh, showed up at the Garden of Gethsemane to be with Jesus in his hour of uh, trial and uh, was nearly nabbed by the cops, right? The, uh, he managed to get away by the, uh, the skin of his teeth. Lead, they grabbed his garment, a linen sheet, uh, and he, he managed to slip out of it and run away with nothing on. Ah, hell with it, who cares about this kid? Uh, could it be that he, uh, he is intended as the, uh, the same young man in the tomb, Nianiskos, uh, that's also not at all unlikely, uh, but you, you, you never know. In fact, uh, a third option is 
that uh, this is supposed to be Jesus in a resurrected form. I think Matthew thought that might be the case, which is why he splits the, the character into two. He, who was the young man? Well, maybe he was an angel, so he has an angel, not just a young man, but an angel speak to the women. Uh, but then immediately as they're leaving, they see Jesus, uh, who pretty much reiterates what the angel had said. So I, I'm guessing that only makes sense if you say Matthew has decided, well, let's cover all the bases here. Let's show both possibilities. Um, why, however, would he show himself to these these women devotees and why uh, before the male disciples and also um, wh and why are they not mentioned in the list of resurrection appearances in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, uh, I think that, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure of this, that what you have there is a tradition, uh, a, a set of stories circulated in the, 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 the groups of uh, chaste uh, women, the, the so-called widows and virgins, perhaps literally, or perhaps they've left their uh, partners and committed themselves to a kind of charismatic, prophetic uh, celibacy, like the, ju the female judge, uh, Deborah, for instance. Uh, and uh, such women are discussed in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, I think, and 7 also. Uh, and that this is because they were a Christian version of the women who every year would reenact the myth of the holy women seeking the, the corpse of the slain god, Osiris, Tammuz, Attis, Baal, etc., they all had pretty much the same story, that the, the young god died in some kind of battle or accident or, or whatever, and, uh, and that uh, the, his uh, consort, uh, lover, whatever, um, decided to go find the body and see what could be done for him and winds up raising him from the dead. Uh, and... Uh, I think that's what was going on here. This was the special resurrection story or resurrection myth of this guild of, of celibate, charismatic women. And naturally, they put themselves at the center of the stage here. They're the, the greatest disciples of Jesus, uh, even now. I mean, especially now, right, in the present when this uh, was told. And so they're, they, I mean, who knows what they, uh, well, they, they don't seem to have thought the, uh, the male disciples could have been first. In fact, I would say that the, uh, one of the stories that's been knit together in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, uh, where, where Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, this was originally understood to be the only appearance of the resurrected Jesus, because what does he tell uh, her? Not what Mark has the young man say, go and tell my brethren to meet me in Galilee. No, in John, Mary Magdalene says, go tell my brethren goodbye. Like he, He's not going to tell him himself, no. 
Uh, and, and this kind of fits the uh, trajectory of, of Gnostic texts which regard Mary Magdalene as the first and greatest witness to the resurrection. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm guessing the compiler of the list of appearances in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, never heard of this. Uh, and uh, was only later that somebody who did hear it decided to join it with the, the better known stories. Um, empty, like the, that there weren't empty tomb stories. Like 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus died and was buried in accordance with the scriptures, but there's no story there. It's like saying he was good and dead, but he rose. Uh, but the empty tomb story is part and parcel of this uh, this this uh, consecrated female tradition, uh, just like uh, it was in the uh, analogous pagan traditions of the holy women reenacting the search for the slain god in their resurrecting him, which is why they're bringing oils and ointments, uh, and just the, what. Isis did when she uh, found the corpse of of uh, Osiris, anointed him and raised him from the dead. Anyway, uh, that's what's going on. And M Mark, whoever he was, has heard this and decided, well, that's pretty neat. Let's bring it into the tradition. But his clientele They'd never heard of this before because the uh, the sacred widows and virgins were really off on their own, even within church. Uh, but you know, so so uh, most of the congregation wouldn't have heard of it, which is why Mark puts himself in an odd position, saying that though the uh, the uh, young man told the women to go tell the news to the disciples. He says they didn't, right? Uh, they they said nothing and fled away because they were totally afraid. Well, if that's the case, how does Mark know it? Well, he doesn't say. Of course, he knows it because he, he's the omniscient narrator, right? Um, but uh, some, some uh, interpreters like to harmonize this and say, well, uh, it doesn't really mean he never told anybody. He just waited a while. What the heck? You're rewriting it the way you wish it read. It doesn't say that. Uh, and uh, and this is this you have to picture the the hearer of this for the first time, like hearing the Gospel of Mark read with this, saying, "Wait, hold on a minute! I've been a Christian for years. I, I've never heard of this before." Oh well, that's uh, that's not really any mystery uh, because uh, the women didn't tell anybody. Though I I have the scoop here. So I think that's what's going on there. Uh, see, Chimmy Kalu says, Police, what is your understanding of Ezekiel's vision of the temple and the restoration of the pure worship? Well, it was one of various proposals, and it was never adopted. Right? This He's saying this was all in a vision, just like it says back in the Pentateuch, that Moses was told to have the temple or the tabernacle, uh, a kind of a proto-temple, um, have it uh, made by the uh, construction crew according to the plan that God had shown him atop Mount Sinai. 
uh, the heavenly tabernacle. Uh, there's one up there, and you got to build an early, I mean, an earthly uh, counterpart. Well, Ezekiel is going along with that. Uh, he's saying, well, what I, the temple's gone now, so we're going to need sooner or later to rebuild it, uh, and, and uh, you should follow this blueprint because an angel told me about it just like God showed Moses the earlier, the pattern for the uh, tabernacle. Uh, so um, uh, that's, uh, he's anticipating the reestablishment of uh, Jewish worship, and uh, he wants, he doesn't want it to be defiled with the uh, signs of pagan worship, which you, according to the Deuteronomic history, uh, were were polluting the the temple uh, before the Cromwellian zeal of Josiah and Hezekiah cleared all of that stuff out and put it to the curb. Well, in the same way, Ezekiel says, "Yeah, we got to be sure that this is not going to offend Yahweh." Now, I would like to take the liberty of uh, reading you a, a, some paragraphs from my uh, book. Holy Fable, Volume 1. This has to do with Ezekiel's vision. And uh, I think I throw some light on this that I've never heard from anyone else. This is uh, Ezekiel Chapter 1. The calling vision... This is, um, this is not a direct quote. This is me, right? The calling vision of Ezekiel uh, is much longer and far more elaborate and detailed than that of any other prophet, despite the fact that it shares several points of similarity with Isaiah 6, right, where Isaiah sees Adonai sitting uh, in his, on his throne in his temple with the seraphim surrounding him. Many today, though no Old Testament scholars, believe that Ezekiel witnessed the touching down of a spacecraft and recorded the incident in chapter 1. This is a fascinating reading of the text. It was easy to dismiss until NASA engineer Joseph F. Bloomrich, um, initially scoffing at the notion, took a close look at the text to his utter astonishment, he found that the description of the Merkava, or throne chariot of God, makes sense as a description of a landing module descending from a larger mother ship. Piece by piece, uh, Bloomrich explains how virtually every detail of the description of the throne chariot and the four-faced cherubim supporting it uh, corresponds to the description of the throne chariot and the four-faced cherubim supporting it corresponds to the description uh, I'm sorry, corresponds to the necessary parts of such a mechanism, most of which would not be beyond the capability of 20th century technology. In short, it would work. Bloomrich is no wild-haired pseudo-scholar on the History Channel grinding an axe. His analysis is quite serious and most impressive. Should we accept it? If we reject it, it should not be because, an approach, because we approach it deductively with the assumption that there cannot have been uh, extraterrestrial uh, in, uh, visitations. I should think it better to examine the evidence and arguments on their own merits, come what may. 
by the way, this book uh, is uh, Bloom Riches, the, Sh the Space Ships of Ezekiel. Okay. Uh, personally, though impressed, I am not convinced. For one thing, much of Bloomrich's case depends on the traditional but now untenable assumption that the writer of Ezekiel was an actual eyewitness. But I suppose one might suggest that the author, whoever he was, had access to an eyewitness account by someone else and decided to insert it into his own book. Uh, the eyewitness theory, it must be admitted, uh, does seem to explain one puzzling feature of the text, namely that the scene goes into much more detail than would be necessary if the point were simply to depict a prophetic calling vision. Just compare it with Isaiah 6. But then we must ask whether an eyewitness, especially given the astonishing sight in question, could possibly have recalled everything in such minute detail. We possess a number of pieces of Near Eastern iconography depicting divine thrones upheld by winged, even four-winged creatures, even full of eyes, as these guys are said to be. No, uh, so such imagery was likely familiar to our author, implying he could simply have adapted several features of it to his own composition, even as the author of the Book of Revelation borrowed and reshuffled bits of the inaugural visions of both Isaiah and Ezekiel in Revelation 4, 6-11. In fact, that is what I think he did. But still, why all the details about the design and motion of the wheels, etc.? Here's my theory. The minutely detailed description of the throne chariot of Yahweh is of a piece with the similarly and tediously explicit blueprint of the temple in uh, chapters 40 through 46 of Ezekiel. The description of the Merkavah is intended as a model for an Ark of the Covenant to go in it. Like the familiar design in Exodus, Ezekiel's Ark would represent the divine throne with attendant angels. And as the one described in Exodus 25, 1 through 22, was portable to be carried by poles running through metal loops along the sides, Ezekiel's was designed to be rolled along and to change direction easily as needed. Thus the intricate details, a set of directions for building it. Would Ezekiel's Ark have featured a bejeweled effigy of the god Yahweh on his throne? Perhaps so, given the careful phraseology of Ezekiel 1, 26-27, attempting to distance the sitting figure from the genuine article, which not even a gifted Basilel or an inspired Aholiab, Exodus 31, 1-11, could ever approximate wouldn't this make sense if the point were to say, this figure stands for Yahweh as inadequate as it must needs be in depicting the real thing? 
Uh, I suspect that the Exodus Ark, too, originally featured an enthroned Yahweh statue since the aniconic, no image, uh, refusal to depict Yahweh must have begun with the Deuteronomic reform, quote-unquote, which I place much later than most in the Hasmonean period. This passage from Ezekiel became the basis for an esoteric practice of visionary meditation in the centuries to follow, the so-called Merkava mysticism, whereby ambitious adepts would meditate on the vision of the throne chariot, hoping to experience the same vision for themselves. But such an out-of-body journey was not to be undertaken lightly, as the famous rabbinic anecdote of the four who entered paradise makes clear. Uh, and here's a quote. Uh, Our rabbis have taught four entered into the Pardesh, or paradise. They were Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Aher, and Rabbi Akiva. Ben Azai gazed and died. Of him it is written, Precious in the sight of Hashem, the name God, is the death of his pious ones, from Tehillim 116.15. Benzoma gazed and went insane. Of him it is written, quote, Have you found honey? Eat your share, lest you become full and vomit it up, end quote. Uh, Mishlei 25.16. Aher became an apostate. Rabbi Akiva entered and exited in peace from Hagigah 14b. This striking tale is a variation on the biblical warning of Exodus 30, 20, 33:20, "You cannot see my face, uh, for man shall not see me and live." Compare Genesis 16.13 and Judges 13.22. How powerful is this cautionary tale? One of the visionaries died of shock at what he saw. Another went insane, his circuits blown by what he had seen. A third could not understand it adequately and began to teach heresies inferred from his vision. Only the great rabbi Akiva had what it took to return safe, sane, and orthodox. Would-be mystic, do you really think you're in his class? Uh, so that's, uh, that's more than you wanted to know, but uh, I had some interesting things to say about the Ark and Ezekiel's vision, and so now you have heard a what I believe is a unique and correct interpretation of the Ark passage in Ezekiel. Okay, this is another one from Ian Firth. He says, The Gabriel Revelation Stone was discovered at the Dead Sea in the early 2000s. It is a three-foot stone with 80, uh, sorry, 87 lines of the text carved, then inked over in Hebrew, dated at 1 CE or predating the death of Jesus. The stone says in one place, I am Gabriel. In three days, the sign will be given. By three days, return to life. I, Gabriel, command you. I, 
Gabriel and the Prince of Princes, the Domain of Rocky Crevices. I'd never heard of this before. I wonder if you have. This puts perspective on the angels at Jesus' tomb. Uh, That's an interesting observation. It seems that the stone was authentically written by the Qumran sect, writing about Simon of Perea, the messianic military leader killed by the Romans, who was spoken of in Josephus. Yeah, after the death of Herod, there were three different guys, a Throngus, uh, Simon, uh, and uh, uh, Judas of Galilee, who uh, each in different corners of the land started uh, messianic revolutionary movements, and they were all killed. Uh, but uh, this would reflect the uh, the followers of Simon uh, of Perea. Uh, I uh, watched a, a documentary on YouTube that Ian kindly suggested. Uh, oh boy, what's the guy's name? Simka Jacobivici, I think, something like that. I'm probably butchering it, sorry. Uh, He makes this case in a sort of a slippery way, it seems to me, uh, placing, he's looking for evidence of where the stone originated because um, the, the collector in Switzerland who owns it now got it from uh, some black market uh, artifact dealer who didn't know where it came from. But it did seem to pan out as authentically ancient, as not some kind of a hoax. But uh, he, uh, Jacob of Jacob Vici, I think, he, uh, I think there there are some uh, some big gaps in the logic there. Uh, nonetheless, it could be Simon. He could be right about it. It's somebody that was important enough for the the uh, Qumran group to uh, to know and follow. But the and the importance of this to Christ, early Christian studies is that, and this is what was trumpeted about this back uh, twenty years ago. Or so that it implies that Christianity did not invent the idea of a Messiah who had to suffer and die and then be resurrected on the third day, no less. Uh, and uh, I mean, students of the Dead Sea Scrolls had already thought that the martyrdom of the teacher of righteousness and the expectation of his someday return was a prototype for Christianity. Um, I mean, this is not a crazy view, but it's pretty insecure because the Hebrew is uh, not complete, and so it's not really certain that that uh, this word "rise" means that. Uh, there there are other possible meanings, and now the guy who who uh, was the first interpreter of this and published this theory now has been convinced by other scholars that he had it wrong and that it is not talking about the, the an angel telling the slain king to rise. I, I guess it's still possible, but it seems unlikely given that crucial ambiguity. But it's certainly fascinating in the same way the Dead Sea Scrolls are. 
you prompted me to read a book uh, about this, a bunch of essays on it, and there's there's another one I've got since that I want to read. Uh, and uh, so it, it is fascinating. It's certainly an interesting thing for any Bible geek to uh, give a listen to. Okay, now I'm not sure. Maybe this is Ian's. I, I'm not sure. I have a, a name and what looks like the same typeface after the one I just gave you or before the next one, so sorry. Uh, okay, is there a so-called musical source in the Tanakh, which you know, the Hebrew Old Testament, that is a source that provides information on all things musical and is concerned primarily with the musical aspects of the world? This source would provide the version of David and Saul becoming acquainted that involves music, the psalms and the hierarchy and roll call of the choir and musicians at the temple. Well, you know, a lot of that stuff uh, is in the book of Psalms as, as later editorial notes in all probability. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a psalm of Asaph, uh, and and uh, it'll give you the tune, uh, the name of the tune. We don't have uh, any score provided, though. And sometimes these notes will even tell you what instruments to use on it. So that could be it, I guess. But the business about David and Solomon, uh, and uh, it makes me think of the uh, book of Yashar, or Jasher, if you prefer, uh, J A. S-H-A-R or Y-A-S-H-A-R means the book of the just. It may be a, uh, a kind of an epic collection of funeral dirges and, and epic adventures um, starring the, the great judges and kings of Israel. It's quoted uh, in connection with uh, Joshua causing the sun and moon to stand still in the book of Joshua. Uh, and the, uh, the elegy for uh, 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 Saul's death. Uh, and it, it might be that, I don't know, but there, there are no musical notes or scores in it. Uh, and if somebody has some sort of esoteric way of finding it, I'd be kind of suspicious. But that's as close as I know to, to what you're, you're suggesting there. Okay, who is this geekish one? This is Ryan from Illinois. And he saith... Uh, dear Geekimus Maximus Priceimus, I have two questions for you. The first one, I've heard you talk about how translations of the Old Testament obscure the name of the God being used in different verses and make it harder for readers to see the differences between the different sources that were combined to create the books. Is there an English translation of the Old Testament that uses the original name of names of God or gods? I'm looking for a translation that uses uses El Elyon, Yahweh, and El Shaddai in the uh, verses uh, where they originally appeared instead of substituting Lord, God, Almighty, or Adonai in their place. Any recommendations would be appreciated. To tell you the truth, uh, Ryan, I have not kept up with the most recent crop of, of Bible uh, 
translations. The, the last one I'm sure about is that the original Jerusalem Bible did have Yahweh. Uh, and, uh, but with the others, I don't think they even used that. Uh, so, but there may be out there. I, I just uh, I, I welcome any Bible geek listener who knows to to share it with us. But I, I'm not. I can't even check actually. With uh, don't have a lot of the newer ones because the good old RSV and NASB and NEB and JB are good enough for me. Hallelujah. Okay. Second question. When I was growing up in a Lutheran church, I remember hearing that the reason for the sacrament of communion was that Jesus had commanded us to do it. Specifically, the verse I'm thinking of is from 1 Corinthians 11.25. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I have never understood this passage. Jesus says, do this. What does this refer to here? And when he says, as often as you drink it, what is it in this context? As far as I can tell, it is wine, and this is passing the wine around and talking about Jesus. So to deconstruct the verse a little, what Jesus is saying do this, passing the wine around and remembering uh, remembering Jesus, as often as you drink it, wine, in remembrance of me. That interpretation seems to have Jesus telling us to remember him every time we drink wine under any circumstance, not just twice a month in church. Is my interpretation way off? This passage doesn't seem to make any grammatical sense to me. Can you shed some light on it? Uh, well, I think that probably Alfred Loisy was correct, the great Roman Catholic modernist, who said that though this is presented in a narrative as what Jesus said at the Last Supper, it doesn't sound like spontaneous speech at a, even at a grave occasion. It sounds like some it sounds like part of a liturgy where the celebrant holds up the wine and says, uh, "Do this in remembrance of of uh, him or if he's speaking in the person of Christ in remembrance of me." And uh, the bread, uh, as often as you eat this, uh, meaning uh, the uh, a celebratory commemoration of him, it was certainly taken that way in the early church, and it, it sounds that way to me. You know, it's, it's interesting, by contrast, to think of all the Jesus movies you've seen, uh, where they depict this. And the, the script writers know that that doesn't sound like natural speech. So to, to make it uh, seem more natural, they change it up a bit. Uh, like in Jesus Christ Superstar, he says, uh, uh, this is my blood you drink, this is my body you eat, if you would remember me. Uh, I must be mad thinking I'll be remembered. I must be out of my head. Look at your blank faces. My name will be nothing ten minutes after I'm dead. Uh, or in The Last Temptation of Christ, etc. Uh, it's, it's kind of uh, 
flattened out as if it isn't necessarily uh, instructions for a ritual because uh, the scene becomes obviously fictive if that's what's happening. It becomes abundantly clear that this is an, a ceremonial etiology, as they call it, a, a story to provide the text for a ritual, and usually those are artificial. And so uh seems to me that's what's going on here. But I think they are saying, yeah, uh, you pass the wine around or, you know, the celebrant may go from person to person to give him a taste of it. Uh, and the same thing with the, the bread. And you're to remember Jesus when you do this. And and that's that's kind of like elsewhere in First Corinthians, where it says uh, you got to be serious about this. Remember what you're doing. If anyone eats the body and drinks the blood uh, without um, knowing what he's doing, uh, without uh, uh, in a false way, uh, without recognizing the the body of the Lord. He's going to be in big trouble. And in fact, I suspect that's why a number of your congregation uh, have uh, recently gotten sick and died. And God was always pulling stuff like that in Exodus and so on, right? Uh, uh, and boy, that, that's really bringing out the big guns, right? And uh, so it's the same idea. You've got to discern the body and blood of Christ. Uh, and I think that's kind of implied here, that it's a heavy-duty uh, cautionary warning. You know, don't participate in this if you're not going to do it with the right attitude. Hmm, thank you, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see, here's at least one more. Um, this, I think, is, yeah, it must be from Kelly Reichert. Is as your imminent Bible geek. I was looking up some of the first Greeks to conceive of atoms, and the author of the article made a tongue-in-cheek comment that, quote, many Greeks of the time thought that the highest form of research was thinking about things because the mind and ideas are superior to the world and the senses, or something like that. This seems to have had a great influence on Christianity. Can you explain what, which components of Christianity originated from Judaism and which originated from Greek thinking? It seems to me that the idea of the Messiah, the law, monotheism, grace, sin, forgiveness stem from Judaism. Um... Yeah, uh, Greek thinking likely introduced the spiritual realm, or at least uh, uh, in a pure, unembodied form. Hades, the afterlife, heaven, division between spirit and flesh. It seems like we see the spirit of God referenced in the Old Testament, but are we projecting a Christian concept of spirit onto those passages? It does seem that the New Testament has more references to the Spirit. Do you think Greek thinking contributed to, uh, to seeds that became the Holy Spirit and the Trinity? Uh, it's possible, and it's tempting to think so, 
but I'm not sure, really. Uh, eventually, it does get Hellenized, but even a lot of the stuff we used to think was uh, the gospel being Hellenized, uh, like the mystery religion terminology and conceptions of Jesus as the kurios, the lord of the worshiping cult, and uh sacramental initiations and oh, those would be a couple of good examples that these things oh well Gnosticism with its uh, heavy dualism between flesh and spirit but it's it's not that clear especially Martin Hengel in a, a book of his called Judaism and Hellenism followed by many others have said look uh, you, you got to remember that by before Christianity came on the scene uh, uh, Israel, Judah, was under the thumb of Alexander the Great and his successors, uh, the the uh, Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and they uh, and there was this great vogue for Hellenizing, uh, so that you, especially in in the diaspora around the Mediterranean, where you had people that grew, Jews who grew up there and didn't even read Hebrew anymore. And so they, the, the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation, and then there were a couple of other Greek translations were done so that the uh, uh, Hellenized Jews could read the scriptures. And uh, the, the institution of the rabbi as a wandering sage with disciples appears to have been borrowed from the the uh, peripatetic schools of Greek philosophers who would meet out in the open or walk around and talk, led by people like uh, Pyrrho and uh, Zeno, Plato, uh, Socrates, Aristotle, etc. Uh, and uh, so they were copying or adapting, should we say, the Greek pattern. They said, hey, that, this looks pretty good. We ought to, we ought to do this too. Or nothing apostate about that. But there was also syncretism, as many Hellenized Jews, even in Palestine and in Egypt and elsewhere, were uh, doing what the Hellenistic world did in general, saying, you know, maybe all the gods are really the same entities, but with different local aliases. And so in the Greek um, Jewish text, the Epistle of Aristeas, this guy says uh, that, I think it was in Alexandria, he said, uh, you can call him Zeus, we call him Yahweh, it's the same guy. <laughs> what? Uh, in Dura Europa, this uh, second or third century um, Palestinian synagogue, uh, there is a floor mosaic that shows Hercules driving a chariot through the wheel of the Zodiac. You know, what, what is going on here? Uh, in North Africa, they found a, a, a coffin, a very elaborate sarcophagus, really, for a, a wealthy Jew, and it shows the, the menorah of Judaism and the wheel of the resurrected Attis. Again, you know, what's going on? Uh, the Naasins, who were uh, 
apparently Hellenized Jews in North Africa, they uh, said that uh, Jesus, Attis, and Adonis were the same guy. Well, no, Jesus, uh, Attis, and Adam, I'm sorry, the same guy. Uh, so that, or the whole religion of uh, Sabasius was a combination of Judaism and, uh, and Dionysus worship. First uh, and Second Maccabees talks about how in the period of the Seleucid domination, loads of Jews were happy to embrace the worship of Dionysus and pretty much skip the Torah. And uh, it's pictured as if uh, they were um, doing this at gunpoint, at sword point. Um, but uh, I'm not quite sure that's the case. Uh, the uh, it, it seems to me that the, you had people voluntarily doing this, like the, uh, the exercising naked in public. Uh, that was a, an old um, Greek practice. Uh, the athletes in the, the Olympics were naked, and that's what gymnasium means from gumnos, naked. And so uh, young Jewish men were... Uh, doing that. And the, the more traditionalists were, oh, they were shocked. Uh, there were some Jews who wanted to fit in so well with their Hellenistic Greek-speaking neighbors that, get a load of this, they had an operation to undo circumcision. <sighs> now, how do you suppose they did that? Well, they, uh, they somehow grabbed hold of the skin around the head of the penis and drew it together to make a new uh, foreskin. <laughs> Holy mackerel! Uh, it's anyway, uh, so it's, it's not like uh, Jews had to be dragged kicking and screaming uh, into paganism. And so, yeah, there, there was a lot of uh, Hellenistic Greek uh, influence on Judaism. But again, that was probably possible only because there was a lot of commonality already. Right? And uh, like the, the dying and rising God business of the, the Hellenistic mystery religions, Jews knew about that in Palestine for a thousand years or more. Um, they, they knew about the religion of Attis and uh, that of Osiris. Uh, they're, they're mentioned in, in the Old Testament. Ezekiel bemoans the fact that the daughters of Jerusalem are mourning uh, Tammuz's uh, death in the streets and so forth. So it was a mixed bag any way you cut it. But there certainly was... Uh, and and uh, the afterlife, you mentioned... Uh, it looks like uh, the early, well, the first ones you read in the Bible anyway, like Genesis and some of the Psalms, they, they um, either say there was no afterlife or that uh, there was, but it wasn't much to speak of. It was just sort of a, a gray, shadowy, dusty uh, parking garage for the ghosts of the dead. Uh, that would never end. What a mess. Nothing to look forward to. Uh, and uh, th that was common in Babylonian and other uh, thought at the time. The zeitgeist, you might say. But uh, 
in thanks to Greek influence, they adopted that was called Sheol, but they adopted Hades, which was sort of similar, but transformed into Tartarus, a place of post-mortem torment for the wicked, and Elysia. Uh, a, a kind of a paradise for the righteous. Well, that began in, in Greek um, eschatology, but was borrowed by, uh, by Jews. So yeah, there's all kinds of borrowings. Hmm. Oh, let's see how much more have I got in the rain barrel. Eh, there's kind of a lot. Uh, maybe I'll uh, have mercy on my voice and stop it right there. And, uh, and But, the, boy, I sure enjoy these questions. They make me think. They make me do some research. And they show me that there are a lot of intellectually hungry people out there. So, thanks for being with me on another exciting episode of The Bible Geek. And I'll see you soon on the next one. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.